0: THE NIGHT OF THE LONG KNIVES by Fritz Leiber Recording by Phil Chenevere CHAPTER ONE I was one hundred miles from nowhere, and I mean that literally, when I spotted this girl out of the corner of my eye. I'd been keeping an extra lookout because I still expected the other undead bugger left over from the murder party at nowhere to be stalking me. I've been following a line of high-voltage towers, all canted over at the same gentlemanly tipsy angle by an old blast from the last war. I judged the girl was going in the same general direction and was being edged over toward my course by a drift of dust that even in my distance showed dangerous metallic gleams and dark humps that might be dead men or cattle. She looked slim, dark-topped, and on guard— "'small, like me, and like me, wearing a scarf loosely around the lower half of her face "'in the style of the old buckaroos. "'We didn't wave or turn our heads or give the slightest indication we'd seen each other "'as our paths slowly converged, but we were intensely, minutely watchful. "'I knew I was, and she had better be. "'Overhead the sky was a low, dust haze, as always. "'I don't remember what a high sky looks like.' Three years ago I think I saw Venus, or it may have been Sirius or Jupiter. The hot, smoky light was turning from the amber of midday to the bloody bronze of evening. The line of towers I was following showed the faintest spread in the direction of their canting. They must have been only a few miles from blast center. As I passed each one, I could see where the metal of the blast side had been eroded, vaporized by the original blast. "'mostly smooth, but with welts and pustules where the metal had merely melted and run. "'I suppose the lines the towers carried had all been vaporized too, "'but with the haze I couldn't be sure, "'though I did see three dark blobs up there that might be vultures perching. "'From the drift around the foot of the nearest tower a human skull peered whitely. "'That is rather unusual.' Years later now you still see more dead bodies with the meat on them than skeletons. Intense radiation had killed their bacteria and preserved them indefinitely from decay, just like the packaged meat in the last advertisements. In fact, such bodies are one of the signs of a really hot drift. You avoid them. The vultures pass up such poisonous hot carrion, too, they've learned their lesson. Ahead some big gas tanks began to loom up like deformed battleships and flat-tops in a smoke-screen, their prows being the juncture of the natural curve of the off-blast side with the massive concavity of the on-blast side. None of the three other buggers and me had had too clear an idea of where nowhere had been, hence, in part, the name, but I knew in a general way that I was somewhere in the deathlands between Porter County and Washington Parish. "'probably much nearer the former. "'It's a real mixed-up America we've got these days, you know, "'with just the faintest trickle of a sense of identity left, "'like a guy in the pad cell "'in the most locked-up ward in the whole loony bin. "'If a time-traveler from mid-twentieth century "'hopped forward to it, "'across the few intervening years "'and looked at a map of it, "'if anybody has a map of it, "'he'd think that the map had run,' That it had got some sort of disease that had swollen a few tiny parts beyond all bounds. Paper tumors, while most of the other parts, the parts he remembered carrying names in such big print and showing such bold colors, had shrunk to nothingness. To the east, he'd see Atlantic Highlands and Savannah Fortress. To the west, Walla Walla Territory, Pacific Palisades, and Los Alamos. And there, he'd see an actual change in the coastline, I'm told, where three of the biggest stockpiles of fusionables let go and opened Death Valley to the sea, so that Los Alamos is closer to being a port. Centrally, he'd find Porter County and Manteno Asylum, surprisingly close together near the Great Lakes, which are tilted and spilled out a bit toward the southwest with the big quake. South-centrally, "'Washita Parish, inching up the Mississippi from old Louisiana "'under the cruel urging of the Fisher Sheriffs. "'Those he'd find, and a few, a very few other places, "'including a couple I suppose I haven't heard of. "'Practically all of them would surprise him. "'No one can predict what scraps of a blasted nation "'are going to hang on to a shred of organization "'and ruthlessly maintain it, "'and very slowly and very jealously extend it. But, biggest of all, occupying practically all the map, reducing all those swollen localities I've mentioned back to tiny blobs, bounding most of America and thrusting its jelly pseudopods everywhere, he'd see the great ink blot of the Deathlands. I don't know how else than by an area of solid, absolutely unrelieved black you'd represent the Deathlands— with its multi-colored radioactive dusts and its skippy freightage of lonely Deathlanders, each bound on his murderous, utterly pointless, but utterly absorbing business, an area where names like Nowhere, It, Anywhere, and The Place are the most natural thing in the world when a few of us decide to try to pad down together for a few nervous months or weeks— As I say, I was somewhere in the Deathlands, near Manteno Asylum. The girl and me were getting closer now, well within pistol or dart range, though beyond any but the most expert or lucky knife-throw. She wore boots and a weathered long-sleeved shirt and jeans. The black topping was hair piled high in an elaborate coiffure that was held in place by twisted shavings of bright metal. A fine bug-trap, I told myself. In her left hand, which was closest to me, she carried a dart gun, pointed away from me across her body. It was the kind of potent tiny crossbow you can't easily tell whether the spring is loaded. Back around on her left hip a small leather satchel was strapped to her belt. Also on the same side were two sheathed knives, one of which was an oddity. It had no handle, just bare tang. For nothing but throwing, I guessed. I let my own left hand drift a little closer to my banker's special in its open holster. Ray Baxter's great psychological weapon, though, who knows, the two thirty-eight cartridges it contained might actually fire. The one I'd put to the test that nowhere had, and very lucky for me. She seemed to be hiding her right arm from me. Then I spotted the weapon it held, one you don't often see, a stevedore's hook. She was hiding her right hand, all right. She had the long sleeve pulled down over it, so just the hook stuck out. I asked myself if the hand were perhaps covered with radiation scars or sores or otherwise disfigured. We Deathlanders have our vanities. I am sensitive about my baldness. Then she let her right arm swing more freely, and I saw how short it was. She had no right hand. The hook was attached to the wrist stump. I judged she was about ten years younger than me. I'm pushing forty, I think, though some people have judged I'm younger. No way of my knowing for sure. In this life you forget trifles like chronology. Anyway, the age difference meant she would have quicker refluxes. I'd have to keep that in mind.' The greenish glinting dust drift that I judged she was avoiding swung closer ahead. The girl's left elbow gave a little kick to the satchel at her hip, and there was a sudden burst of irregular ticks that almost made me start. I steadied myself and concentrated on thinking whether I should attach any special significance to her carrying a Geiger counter. Naturally, it wasn't the sort of thinking that interfered in any way with my watchfulness— You quickly lose the habit of that kind of thinking in the Deathlands, or you lose something else. It could mean she was some sort of greenhorn. Most of us old-timers can visually judge the heat of a dust-drift or crater or raid area more reliably than any instrument. Some buggers claim they just feel it, though I'd never known any of the latter, too eager to navigate an unfamiliar country at night.' which you'd think they'd be willing to do if they could feel the heat blind. But she didn't look one bit like a tenderfoot. Like, for instance, some citizeness newly banished from Manteno, or like some porter-burger's unfaithful wife or troublesome girlfriend, whom he'd personally carted out beyond the ridges of cleaned-out hot dust to help guard such places, and then abandoned in revenge or from boredom and they call themselves civilized, those cultural queers. No, she looked like she belonged in the Deathlands. But then why the counter? Her eyes might be bad, real bad. I didn't think so. She raised her boot an extra inch to step over a little jagged fragment of concrete. No. Maybe she was just a born double-checker, using science to back up knowledge based on experience, as rich as my own. "'or richer. "'I've met the super-careful type before. "'They mostly get along pretty well, "'but they tend to be a shade too slow in the clutches. "'Maybe she was testing the counter, "'planning to use it some other way or trade it for something. "'Maybe she made a practice of traveling by night. "'Then the counter made good sense, "'but then why use it by day? "'Why reveal it to me in any case? "'Was she trying to convince me that she was a greenhorn?' Or had she hoped that the sudden noise would throw me off guard? But who would go to the trouble of carrying a Geiger counter for such devious purposes? And wouldn't she have waited until we got closer before trying the noise gambit? Think, Schmink, it gets you nowhere. She kicked off the counter with another bump of her elbow and started to edge in toward me faster. I turned the thinking all off and gave my whole mind to watchfulness. Soon we were barely more than eight feet apart, almost within lunging range without even the preliminary one-two step, and still we hadn't spoken or looked straight at each other. Though being that close we'd had to cant our heads around a bit to keep each other in peripheral vision, our eyes would be on each other steadily for five or six seconds, then dart forward an instant to check for rocks and holes in the trail we were following in parallel. A cultural queer from one of these civilized places would have found it funny, I suppose, if he'd been able to watch us perform in an arena or from behind armor-glass for his exclusive pleasure. The girl had eyebrows as black as her hair, which, in its piled-up and metal-knotted savagery, called to mind African queens, despite her typical pale complexion, very little ultraviolet gets through the dust. From the inside corner of her right eye socket, a narrow radiation scar ran up between her eyebrows and across her forehead at a rakish angle until it disappeared under a sweep of hair at the upper left corner of her forehead. I'd been smelling her, of course, for some time. I could even tell the color of her eyes now. They were blue. It's a color you never see. Almost no dusts have a bluish cast. There are few blue objects except certain dark steels. The sky never gets very far away from the orange range, though it is green from time to time, and water reflects the sky. Yes, she had blue eyes. Blue eyes and that jaunty scar. Blue eyes and that jaunty scar, and a dart gun and a steel hook for a right hand. And we were walking side by side, eight feet apart, not an inch closer still not looking straight at each other, still not saying a word, and I realized that the initial period of unadulterated watchfulness was over, that I'd had adequate opportunity to inspect this girl and size her up, and that night was coming on fast, and that here I was once again, back with the problem of the two urges. I could either try to kill her or go to bed with her. I know that at this point the cultural queers, and certainly our imaginary time-traveler from mid-20th century, would make a great noise about not understanding and not believing in the genuineness of the simple urge to murder that governs the lives of us Deathlanders. Like detective story pundits, they would say that a man or woman murders for gain or concealment of crime or from thwarted sexual desire or outraged sexual possessiveness and maybe they would list a few other rational motives. But not, they would say, just for the simple sake of murder, for the sure release and relief it gives, for the sake of wiping out one recognizable bit more, the closest bit we can, since those of us with the courage or lazy rationality to wipe out ourselves have long since done so wiping out one recognizable bit more of the whole miserable, unutterably disgusting human mess. Unless, they would say, a person is completely insane, which is actually how all outsiders view us Deathlanders, they can think of us in no other way. I guess cultural queers and time travelers simply don't understand, though to be so blind it seems to me that they have to overlook much of the history of the last war and of the subsequent years, especially the mushrooming of crackpot cults with a murder tinge, the werewolf gangs, the berserkers and the muckers, the revival of Shiva worship and the black mass, the machine wreckers, the the kill-the-killers movements, the new witchcraft— the unholy creepers, the unconsciousers, the radioactive blue gods and rocket devils of the atomites, and a dozen other groupings clearly prefiguring Deathlander psychology. Those cults had all been unpredictable as Thuggy or the Dancing Madness of the Middle Ages or the Children's Crusade, yet they had happened just the same. But cultural queers are good at overlooking things. They have to be, I suppose. They think their humanity growing again. Yes, despite their laughable warpedness and hysterical crippleness, they actually believe, each howlingly different community of them, that they're the new Adams and Eves. They're all excited about themselves and whether or not they wear fig leaves. They don't carry with them twenty-four hours a day like us Deathlanders do the burden of all that was forever lost. Since I've gone this far, I'll go a bit further and make the paradoxical admission that even us Deathlanders don't really understand our urge to murder. Oh, we have our rationalizations of it, just like everyone has his ruling passion. We call ourselves junkmen, scavengers, gangrene surgeons. We sometimes believe we're doing the person we kill the ultimate kindness. Yes, and get slobbery tearful about it afterwards. We sometimes tell ourselves we finally found and are rubbing out the one man or woman who was responsible for everything. We talk mostly to ourselves about the aesthetics of homicide. We occasionally admit, but only each to himself alone, that we're just plain nuts. But we don't really understand our urge to murder. We only feel it. At the hateful sight of another human being, We feel it begins to grow in us until it becomes an overpowering impulse that jerks us like a puppet is jerked by its strings into the act itself or its attempted commission. Like I was feeling it grow in me now, as we did this parallel death march through the reddening haze, me and this girl and our problem, the girl with the blue eyes and the jaunty scar. The problem of the two urges, I said. The other urge is sexual, is one that I know all cultural queers, and certainly our time traveler, would claim to know all about. Maybe they do, but I wonder if they understand how intense it can be with us Deathlanders when it's the only release, except maybe liquor and drugs, which we seldom can get and even more rarely dare use, the only complete release, even though a brief one from the overpowering loneliness and from the tyranny of the urge to kill. To embrace, to possess, to glut lust on, yes, even briefly to love, briefly to shelter in, that was good, that was a relief and release to be treasured. But it couldn't last. You couldn't draw it out, prop it up perhaps for a few days, for a month even, though sometimes not for a single night. You might even start to talk to each other a little after a while, but it could never last. The glands always tire, if nothing else. Murder was the only final solution, the only permanent release. Only us Deathlanders know how good it feels. But then, after the kill, the loneliness would come back, redoubled, and after a while I'd meet another hateful human. Our problem of the two urges... As I watched this girl slogging along, parallel to me, as I kept constant watch on her, of course, I wondered how she was feeling the two urges. Was she attracted to the ridgy scars on my cheeks, half revealed by my scarf? To me they have a pleasing symmetry. Was she wondering how my head and face looked without the black felt skullcap, low visored over my eyes? Or was she thinking mostly of that hook swinging into my throat under the chin and dragging me down. I couldn't tell. She looked as poker-faced as I was trying to. For that matter, I asked myself, how was I feeling the two urges? How was I feeling them as I watched this girl with the blue eyes and the jaunty scar and the arrogantly thinned lips that asked to be smashed and the slender throat? And I realized that there was no way to describe that, not even to myself. I could only feel the two urges grow in me, side by side, like monstrous twins, until they would simply be too big for my taut body, and one of them would have to get out fast. I don't know which one of us started to slow down first. It happened so gradually, but the dust puffs that rise from the ground of the Deathlands, even under the slightest treading, became smaller and smaller around our steps, and finally vanished altogether and we were standing still. Only then did I notice the obvious physical trigger for our stopping. An old freeway ran at right angles across our path. The shoulder by which we'd approached it was sharply eroded, so that the pavement, which even had a shallow cave eroded under it, was a good three feet above the level of our path, forming a low wall. From where I'd stopped, I could almost reach out and touch the rough-edged, smooth-topped concrete. So could she. We were right in the midst of the gas-tanks now. Six or seven of them towered around us, squeezed like beer cans by the decade-old blast, but their metal-looking sound enough until you became aware of the red light showing through in odd patterns of dots and dashes where vaporization or later erosion had been complete. Almost, but not quite, lacework. Just ahead of us, right across the freeway, was the six-story skeletal structure of an old cracking plant sagged like the power-towers away from the blast, and the lower stories drifted with piles and ridges and smooth gobbets of dust. The light was getting redder and smokier every minute. With the cessation of the physical movement of walking, which is always some sort of release for emotions, I could feel the twin urges growing faster in me. But that was all right, I told myself. This was the crisis, as she must realize too, and that should key us up to bear the urges a little longer without explosion. I was the first to start to turn my head. For the first time I looked straight into her eyes and she into mine. And, as always happens at such times, a third urge appeared abruptly, an urge momentarily as strong as the other two, the urge to speak, to tell, and ask all about it. But even as I started to phrase the first crazily happy greeting, my throat lumped, as I'd known it would, with the awful melancholy of all that was forever lost, with the uselessness of any communication, with the impossibility of recreating the past, our individual pasts, any pasts, and as it always does, the third urge died. I could tell she was feeling that ultimate pain just like me. I could see her eyelids squeeze down on her eyes and her face lift and her shoulders go back as she swallowed hard. She was the first to start to lay aside a weapon. She took two sidewise steps toward the freeway and reached her whole left arm further across her body and laid the dart gun on the concrete and drew back her hand from it about six inches. "'at the same time looking at me hard, fiercely angrily, you would say, across her left shoulder. "'She had the experienced duelist trick of seeming to look into my eyes but actually focusing on my mouth. "'I was using the same gimmick myself. "'It's tiring to look straight into another person's eyes, and it can put you off guard. "'My left side was nearest the wall, so I didn't for the moment have the problem of reaching across my body.' I took the same sidewise steps she had, and using just two fingers, very gingerly, disarmingly, I hoped, I lifted my antique firearm from its holster, and laid it on the concrete, and drew back my hand from it all the way. Now it was up to her again, or should be. Her hook was going to be quite a problem, I realized, but we didn't come to it right away.' She temporized by successively unsheathing the two knives at her left side and laying them beside the dart gun. Then she stopped, and her look told me plainly that it was up to me. Now I am a bugger who believes in carrying one perfect knife. Otherwise, I know for a fact you'll go knife-happy and end up by weighing yourself down with dozens, literally. So I am naturally very reluctant to get out of touch in any way with mother— is a little rusty along the sides, but made of the toughest and most sharpenable alloy steel I've ever run across. Still I was most curious to find out what she'd do about that hook, so I finally laid Mother on the concrete beside the thirty-eight and rested my hands lightly on my hips, all ready to enjoy myself. At least I hoped I gave that impression. She smiled. It was almost a nice smile. By now we'd let our scarves drop since we weren't raising any more dust, and then she took hold of the hook with her left hand and started to unscrew it from the leather and metal base fitting over her stump. Of course, I told myself, and her second knife, the one without a grip, must be that way so she can screw its tang into the base when she wanted a knife on her right hand instead of a hook. I ought to have guessed. I grinned my admiration of her mechanical ingenuity, and immediately unhitched my knapsack and laid it beside my weapons. Then a thought occurred to me. I opened the knapsack, and moving my hands slowly and very openly, so she'd have no reason to suspect a ruse, I drew out a blanket, and, trying to show her both sides of it in the process, as if I were performing some damned conjuring trick, dropped it gently on the ground between us. She unsnapped the straps of her satchel that fastened it to her belt and laid it aside, and then she took off her belt, too, slowly drawing it through the wide loops of weathered denim. Then she looked meaningfully at my belt. I had to agree with her. Belts, especially heavy-buckled ones like ours, can be nasty weapons. I removed mine. Simultaneously, each belt joined its corresponding pile of weapons and other belongings. She shook her head, not in any sort of negation, and ran her fingers into the black hair at several points to show me it hid no weapons, then looked at me questioningly. I nodded that I was satisfied. I hadn't seen anything run out of it, by the way. Then she looked up at my black skullcap and raised her eyebrows and smiled again, this time with a spice of mocking anticipation. In some ways, I hate to part with that headpiece more than I do with Mother not really because of its sandwiched lead-mesh inner lining. If the rays haven't baked my brain yet, they never will, and I'm sure that the patches of lead-mesh sewed into my pants over my loins give a lot more practical protection. But I was getting real attached to this girl by now, and there are times when a person must make a sacrifice of his vanity. I whipped off my stylish black felt and tossed it on my pile and dared her to laugh at my shiny egg-top. Strangely, she didn't even smile. She parted her lips and ran her tongue along the upper one. I gave an eager grin in reply, an incautiously wide one, and she saw my plates flash. My plates are something rather special, though they are by no means unique. Back toward the end of the last war, when it was obvious to any realist how bad things were going to be, though not how strangely terrible, a number of people, like myself, had all their teeth jerked and replaced with durable plates. I went some of them one better. My plates were stainless steel biting and chewing ridges, smooth continuous ones that didn't attempt to copy individual teeth. A person who looks closely at a slab of chewing tobacco, say I offer him, will be puzzled by the smoothly curved incision made as if by a razor blade mounted on the arm of a compass. "'Magnetic powder buried in my gums makes for a real nice fit. "'This sacrifice was worse than my hat and mother combined, "'but I could see the girl expected me to make it "'and would take no substitutes, "'and in this attitude I had to admit "'that she showed very sound judgment "'because I keep the incisor parts of those plates "'filed to raise her sharpness. "'I have to be careful about my tongue and lips, "'but I figure it's worth it. "'With my dental scimitars... I can, in a wink, bite out a chunk of throat and windpipe or jugular, though I have never had occasion to do so yet. For the first minute it made me feel like an old man, a real dodderer. but by now the attraction this girl had for me was getting irrational. I carefully laid the two plates on top of my knapsack. In return, as a sort of reward, you might say, she opened her mouth wide and showed me what was left of her own teeth about two-thirds of them, a patchwork of tartar and gold. We took off our boots, pants, and shirts, she watching very suspiciously. I knew she'd been skeptical of my carrying only one knife. Oddly, perhaps, considering how touchy I am about my baldness, I felt no sensitivity about revealing the lack of hair on my chest, and, in fact, a sort of pride in displaying the slanting radiation scars that have replaced it though they are crawling keloids of the ugliest, bumpiest sort. I guess to me such scars are tribal insignia. One man and one woman tribes, of course. No question, but that scar on the girl's forehead had been the first focus of my desire for her, and it still added to my interest. By now we weren't staying as perfectly on guard or watching each other's clothing for concealed weapons as carefully as we should. I know I wasn't. It was getting dark fast. There wasn't much time left, and the other interest was simply becoming too great. We were still automatically careful about how we did things. For instance, the way we took off our pants was like a ballet, simultaneously crouching a little on the left foot and whipping the right leg out of its sheath in one movement, all ready to jump without tripping ourselves if the other person did anything funny, and then skinning down the left pant's leg with a movement almost as swift. But, as I say, it was getting too late for perfect watchfulness, in fact, for any kind of effective watchfulness at all. The complexion of the whole situation was changing in a rush. The possibilities of dealing or receiving death, along with the chance of the minor indignity of cannibalism, which some of us practice, were suddenly gone, all gone. It was going to be all right this time, I was telling myself. This was the time it would be different." This was the time love would last, this was the time lust would be the firm foundation for understanding and trust, this time that would be really safe sleeping. This girl's body would be home for me, a beautiful, tender, inexhaustibly exciting home, and mine for her for always. As she threw off her shirt, the last darkly red light showed me another smooth, slant-wise scar, this one around her hips like a narrow girdle that has slipped down a little on one side. End of chapter 1